You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Well, we're going to this morning uh, do a little bit of a revision. I guess it's a little bit like a SWAT vac, and you're kind of thinking, well, (laughs) cool. Usually that means there's an exam coming up, so what's the exam? Well, the exam is the Christian life. You are constantly being tested in it. So knowing full well that that will be before you um, this coming week, and the week after that, and actually the week after that. I'm getting quite prophetic, aren't I? The week after that too, and the week after that. Until kingdom comes, or you go home to be with the Lord, you are going to consistently be tested in your faith. Every day is a, as a, an examination of the Christian life. And you may be wondering, as with all of the saints, is it actually possible to be victorious in this task? Is there such thing as, some authors have, have written, the victorious Christian life? Is it possible? Is it doable? Can you, can you pass this exam with, with flying colors? Well, to explore that theme and to, to have a little bit of a look at that, we're going to just do a little bit of a review or revision of, of the last couple of weeks um, in, in Joshua. But firstly, let me just, just paint the picture that we are celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper um, this morning. And, and so, yes, here it is. And I wanted to actually just uh, highlight it by putting this, this meal up on the stage. Um, here is, if you like, uh, uh, two, two symbols, very, very important. If you, if, if you will, we could call this gospel food gospel food. And we are actually all going to, uh, for all those who believe and would like to partake later, we're all going to actually eat and drink some gospel food and gospel drink. Now, Jesus, this is part one, because because Jesus said, um, you're only going to do this, and when you do it, remember me, this side of eternity. But but there will come a time in heaven where, where these, these simple elements will turn into the most amazing banquet. That's part two. And we're looking forward to it. It is a banquet that you should be looking forward to. Your heavenly father, being Father's Day, he wants you to know that he has already prepared an amazing banquet. Jesus spoke of this um, in uh, uh, Luke um, chapter 22. He talked about taking these elements And for instance, after taking the cup with his disciples, he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Taking the bread, he said, take it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Also saying that he would not eat of this until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So this meal as it were, uh, which started as the Passover, became what we talk about in Christian circles as communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. This, this meal is now going to take on another dimension. When we are gathered before the throne and, and our Heavenly Father lays out a, a wonderful banquet for us, this meal is going to take on yet another dimension. It will find its fulfillment. Right now it is but two, two small symbols. It is going to be a vast banquet. It will find its fulfillment in the coming kingdom. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. You got to circle that thought, capture that, got that? Now, let's go back and, and we'll do our exam preparation. My first and only attempt at running away from home was rather short-lived. In, in all, it lasted 20 minutes. So I decided this is not what it's supposed to 
cracked up to be. I'd heard wonderful stories about running away from home and the delights of it. Um, in terms of attention-seeking, there can be virtually nothing better, can there? I mean, screaming, a limited potential, a tantrum, maybe a little bit more, but running away from home, I mean, oh, the, the merits of it. Well, that's what they say. That's how they sell it. Not at all, not at all. After 20 minutes, I realized it's dark out here. I was, I was just in the front garden. <laughs> I hadn't got very far. I realized it was very dark. I didn't want to go too far because we all know that there are boogeymen there and my running away from home might take on dimensions I hadn't planned. But it was also very cold. And then probably just to add to it, nobody had actually noticed I'd left. <laughs> so I guess probably I should have written some sort of a note or something and screaming from outside, I've run away from home, wasn't really going to work. So after about 20 minutes, I gave it up and, and I went home. You know, prodigals, by their very nature, know that they're not home. When we leave home, when we're, we've strayed from home, when we're far away from home, the one common denominator is in that prodigal state, we know we're not home. The only thing is we've got to come to a point where we choose that being home is better than being away from home. And I would say that by way of an encouragement to, to all of you here this morning. Maybe you have a loved one. Maybe somebody very close to you, and they're a prodigal. And all of the propaganda is that they're very, very happy and very, very content where they are. Don't believe it. The common denominator for prodigals is always this. They know they're not home. So pray for that day where they realize it. They come to understand that they've strayed. But it's also true of us. When we have those moments where we stray from God, where we have, for one reason or another, found ourselves away from him rather than close to him, we, we know the verse. It was verse of the day today, if you, if you have you version on your phone. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. We know to be home with God is a good thing. To share intimacy with our heavenly father is a good thing. But... When we find ourselves away from him, what do we do? Is it fatal or is it recoverable? Are we destined to a, to a life away from God? The dark night of the soul, how long can that night be? Or will a dawn come? Will a new day come where we can share warmth and intimacy with God once more. Well, in, in our readings in Joshua, we come to, to a time where, where Israel had asked that question. They had strayed from God. They had not been entirely obedient to everything that he had asked of them. They had stolen through Achan some things, uh, which some plunder from the city of Jericho, which was not theirs. And they'd found themselves in a a terrible state where whilst going up to battle with the city of Ai, they were, they were defeated, terribly defeated. And, and they actually wondered if God had departed from them and, and left them for good. Is, is this it? Is this fatal or is it recoverable? And, and there's a number of things that we can learn. But let me read to you 
about the battle of Ai and and how that plays plays out in Joshua chapter 8. And we'll read from verse 1 and and we'll try and get a little bit of a picture that, that this Christian life and victory in the Christian life is possible. It's doable. It's there for you and it's there for me. There is a way home. There is a way home. This whole thing is recoverable. Chapter 8 verse 1 starts out with a very familiar ring. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Heard that before? Wasn't that something that we read way, way back in chapter 1 when Joshua first started out in this whole campaign? And here is God mercifully repeating it once more. It's recoverable. Where you've got yourself is not fatal. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai, for I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai. His people, his city, and his land. Verse 2. You shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He he chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You were to set an ambush behind the city. Now we'll pause there and I'll just give you a little bit of a summary. And he basically tells them, um, you've got, uh, uh, got the River Jordan, and um, to the west of that, towards the, towards the ocean, you've got Bethel, and you've got Ai, and they are to go west of Ai, um, between Bethel and the sea, and they, the sand bush is to come this way. The main army will come this way, just north of the city. So that's the, that's the picture there. Okay, let's jump to, to verse 10. Um, So that's the plan. Early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with them marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Um, Then we... Then we go on, verse 14. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arabah. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, and they fled toward the wilderness. And all the men of Ai were called to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out toward the city the javelin that was in his hand. As soon as he did this, the men in ambush, who were west of Ai, well, they rushed forward to the city. Um, And they entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. Verse 20, the men of Ai, they looked back. They saw the smoke of the city rising up into the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. The Israelites, who had been fleeing toward the wilderness, had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and the smoke was going up from it, they turned around and attacked the men of Ai. Let's jump jump down to verse 28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole and left there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and and throw it down the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks over it, which remains to this day. The promise of God here 
was, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. I am with you. There is victory here. And then in verse 7, we see this incredible promise. Take possession of the town, for the Lord your God will give it to you. It's, it's that, that language we often find in the Bible where there seems to be something for us to do and something that God will do for us. Um, you are to take possession of the town. Um, they are commanded, the Lord your God will give it to you. So there's something that God is going to do on behalf of the nation here, and yet there is something that the nation must do in return. And it seems that it's always the way to find ourselves um, uh, or find our way back home. It is always necessary to, to have that moment of choosing, to come to your senses, to make a choice, to say, I'm not home. I'd like to be home. It would be better to be home. I'd like to go home. And to have that awakening moment of choosing, I want to go home now. And God will get you home. And exactly, that's exactly what we were, were looking at in, in chapter 7. That's what had to happen. There was sin in the camp and it had to be dealt with. And, and we talked about, and here's the summary. Here's our, our SWAT back. Here's our little revision of where we've been in, in Joshua. But we explored four steps to get you home when you're lost. Something that we can do. And the four steps are, are quite this. Firstly, face the sin. The first thing we noted was that, that Joshua was, was down on his face. Uh, he was just uh, devastated about this initial loss to this small city of Ai. What has happened? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. What has happened to us? Is, is God still with us? And, and God simply says, get up. Get up. What are you doing on the ground? Get up. Israel has sinned. Okay, so the very, very first step is when we've sinned is to, to get up. Face the sin. We need to face it front on. There's no way around it. There's no way over it. There's no way under it. Here is an obstacle in our life, and it separates us from God, and it has to be dealt with. So we face the sin. The second step is face the consequences of the sin. Uh, quite frankly, if we, if we don't do anything about this, two things, two things are sure. God says, because there is, there is sin in the camp, you are weak, and I will no longer be with you. So sin affects us in two ways. It makes us weak, and we feel far away from God. Now, we explored this in terms of new covenant terms, and what does, what does this mean? Does every time we sin, does God literally you know, leave us? Does, he, does his spirit within us all of a sudden say, oh, I don't like this, and, and, and go off? No, 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 no. That would be false thinking. But we can lose that sense of intimacy that we have with God because sin just has that effect. I use two examples. You might remember I had a piece of, piece of rubber hose and, and in terms of feeling weak, I, I put a kink in it. I tied a knot in it and I explained it this way um, using the verse Philippians 2.13 for, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Uh, this is God and his, his gracious resources wanting to flood through your life, to flow through your life, um, illustrated by the hose, in order to accomplish, to help you to will and to act according to his good purposes. And once there's a kink in the hose, well, the grace 
the grace is blocked. It just can't flow like it's supposed to flow. What happens is we become weak. We no longer have that beautiful flow. of The reservoir of gracious resources of God, it's still there. God still desires for us to do good works. But his grace is somehow blocked because of sin. It makes us weak. The other illustration I used was referring back to Enid Blyton's um, novels, The Faraway Tree. Um, this, this promise of a, of a wonderful new land if you climb up the tree. But all you do is find yourself far away from home. Sin has that dual effect. It will weaken you and you will find yourself feeling far away from God. That's what it, that's what it does. And so we need to face uh, the sin and we need to face the consequences. If this is undealt with, this is inevitable. You will be weak in the Christian life. And sadly, if you continue to fail to deal with the sin, you will become weaker and weaker and weaker. And then secondly, it's not just the fact that you'll be weak, but you will find yourself feeling far away from God. Those, those moments of intimacy will be long gone. You'll often feel, feel a little bit like, well, I know I was passionate about God at that stage of my life, but I don't know, was that just kiddie emotion or something? Was that just a phase that I was going through? Of course, I'm all grown up now and uh, much more the theologian. I don't necessarily have to trust those feelings anymore, but, but is it so? Were the psalmists all juvenile in their faith? Because I tell you, there's a lot of passion in the Psalms. Maybe. If you no longer feel that passion, that, that hunger for God, if, if your affections are in no way stimulated by God, maybe you are far away from Him and all is not well. And you can't just put it down to having outgrown a dependence upon emotion. A dependence upon that would not be good. But to fail to experience any emotion whatsoever when it comes to God, that wouldn't be right either. And so they are the consequences of sin. It needs to be dealt with. And so the third step was to, to firstly deal with the sin. And in this regard, we talked about the, the importance of the the blood of Christ. And this, of course, is, is symbolized by, by the wine or juice, in this case, that we're going to, to drink together in, in a short time. But the, the blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. It, it, it covers over us. It's like a covering. And under that covering, there is, there is no accusation, no allegation can be can be brought against us. And then we also need to deal with the sinner. And we talked about the importance of the cross, of Christ whose body was broken on the cross, and, and we will eat the bread and we'll remind ourselves of the body of Christ which has been broken for you and for I. He was killed. He was crucified on that cross. But here's the thing. When we are in Christ, so were you, and so was I. We talked about the fact that our, yeah, one of the realities of being in Christ 
is that we actually celebrate our funeral long before our physical death. I died a couple of thousand years ago, as did you, in Christ. It's no longer we who lives, but Christ who lives within us. The life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so in that regard, we're able to deal with the sinner as well. We need to face the sin. We need to face the consequences of the sin. We need to deal with the sin. But then we also need to deal with the sinner. And Jesus does that by crucifying us along with with himself. So they're the four steps that we explored. Do you remember them? They're kind of there. Dust, Dust off the cobwebs. They're the four steps that will get you home. And what does it mean to be home? Well, we see that they were to set Israel, when they were to take the city of Ai, they were to set an ambush. 30,000 men were going to be west of the city of Ai. And so with 30,000 men, Joshua ambushed Israel's enemy. And with 30 shekels of silver, Jesus ambushed yours. Your enemy at the cross was totally outgunned. He was ambushed. He so wanted to know what was going on. He had demons use human vessels to cry out, What, Jesus, are you up to? He could not work it out. He was ambushed. At the cross. There's a beautiful passage in Zechariah chapter 3. This is another Joshua. This is Joshua the high priest. And Zechariah is having a, a vision, he's looking into the heavenlies. And this is what he sees. And and by the way, when we read the angel of the Lord here, because it has the definite article, the angel of the Lord, it would seem to be suggesting that, that this is not an angel of the Lord, but that this is actually God himself. Theologians aren't entirely sure is it what we would call a theophany, that is an appearance of God, or a Christophany, that means an appearance of Christ a pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know, but we do believe it's an appearance of of God, God the Father or or maybe Christ. So give you that context. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Okay? So just so you get this picture. Joshua, the high priest, in his high priestly role, he also had a kingly role, actually. But in his high priestly role, he represents all of the people. That's what the priest does. He mediates. So in his high priestly role, here is Joshua, the high priest, representing the whole nation of Israel. And he stands before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord 
said to Satan, so he's not talking to Joshua, the high priest. He's talking to Satan. The Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, This is Zechariah, I love this bit. So Zechariah, well, if, if the angel of the Lord is in front and Joshua's here in the vision, Satan is over here. I imagine Zechariah sort of viewing things from here because you really want to, wouldn't want to view it from here, would you? It'd be too close to Satan. So I imagine Zechariah in his vision looking onto this scene from here. Here's the angel of the Lord, a theophany, a Christophany. Here's God. Here is Joshua representing all of Israel. There's Satan on the other side of him. Sorry, Lee, not pointing to you. There's Satan on the other side of him accusing, accusing Joshua. Zechariah is looking on and he's caught up in this moment. I mean, what an amazing vision. And the Lord says, not to Joshua, but Satan, I rebuke you. Is not this man, referring to Joshua, is not he my man? I've chosen him. I rebuke you. And then he looks at the clothes that Joshua is wearing. They're not fit for someone of the new righteous stature that God is now bestowing on Joshua. So he says, come on, get rid of those filthy rags. Let's put some new clothes on you fitting for a person that I have just snatched from the fire. You get the picture here? Well, Zechariah is so caught up in the moment. He's so, this picture is so vivid to him. He jumps in. He jumps into the picture and he says, oh, oh, and put a new turban on his head as well. You know, so there's the high priestly turban. And, and it seems acceptable in this vision for Zechariah to give some input. And so that's exactly what happens. I said, put a clean turban on his head. Well, they did. <laughs> so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? We have an accuser. We have one who would love to drag up anything and everything against you and I. But we have an advocate. And our advocate says, I rebuke you. Is not this person like a piece of wood snatched from the fire? I have Save them. And we are clothed with splendor, and a new turban is put on our head. And, and you could perhaps picture many things for that. Of course, in the priestly role, it had to do with authority. And you do, you have a new authority, but you also have the mind of Christ now. You're able to think differently. Think about yourself differently. See yourself in a new light. See yourself even as God sees you. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And your accuser forever stands rebuked.
For that reason, we celebrate. And that's exactly what the people of Israel did. They renew the covenant. Joshua built an altar. Not an elaborate one that might in some way become the object of worship, but just a, a coarse altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. And on it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There was celebration. There was appreciation. There was a renewal of the covenant. Here was Israel celebrating God's goodness to them. Look, we have been victorious. Look, it was not fatal. Look, God has got us home, back in his presence again. We are no longer weak. We are no longer estranged from God or astray. He's brought us home. He's made us victorious. This is doable. We are his people once more. This is worth celebrating, and they renew the covenant together. And that is... That is true of you and I as well. And, and so we come back to the feast. In recognition of the reality of those four steps, we get to eat gospel food. In recognition of the fact that if we face our sin, if we face up to the consequences, we can't remain here. Oh, I want to go home. I really long to be home. Then, by dealing with the sin... And dealing with the sinner, we can enjoy fellowship with God once more. And that is worth having a feast. Oh, just a pale one compared to what awaits us. That vast banquet which your heavenly father has spread out for you and for I. But for now, here are two symbols to remind you and to remind me that we're home. We've come home. And our Heavenly Father awaits us with the most wonderful, big, warm embrace. And it's, wow, one day it's all going to be right. It's all going to be okay. His kingdom will find its fulfillment. And on that day, oh, the banquet we're going to enjoy. It's going to be even better than the, the pizza and prayer night that the men's ministry is putting on. Go figure. And to remind us of that, we're going to take these two elements. And I would like you to think particularly about steps three and steps four. He's dealt with our sin. He's dealt with the sinner. And there are two things that I'd like you to contemplate. I am forgiven, and I am free. They are the two truths that you need to walk out the door remembering today. I am forgiven. I am free. You are being dressed in new clothes of righteousness. Wonderful splendor. You have a new turban on your head. Don't know if you can picture that. It's more significant for some of us than others. But it speaks of the, the righteousness of Christ and thinking differently about yourself now. Of remembering that I am now a child of God, free to be all that he has made me to be.
Is that worth celebrating? Amen. Amen. We could be a little bit more Pentecostal than that. Is that worth celebrating? Oh, you're good at that. You're good at that. Let's celebrate. Let's, let's pray. I'd like to invite the, the band to come up while I pray. We're going to... Um, this is kind of a record time for, for me. Uh, so we're, we're not in a hurry here. We're going to just linger over the Lord's Supper. We'll set up different stations at different places here. I want you to take these elements. I want you to think about what we've been saying. I want you to remember you are forgiven. I want you to remember you are, you are free. If you can remember those two things as we eat this gospel food, you're passed. You're going to pass your examination with flying colors. You're good. You're in a good place. You're well studied. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the joy of being together today. We have fellowship with you and we have fellowship with one another. We want to thank you for this gospel food and, and the symbolism it carries with us. We want to thank you that we are reminded of your blood shed for us, purifying us from all sin, covering us totally from any accusation that may come from Satan, our accuser. We are forgiven. Now clothed in righteous splendor, able to think differently about ourselves because of the identity we have now with you. We are free. Free to be all that you desire us to be. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak this truth to us. Let it saturate us. Let it permeate us. Let it go into deep places. Forgiven and free. Forgiven and free. Forgiven and free. Come now and minister this truth to us, we pray. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.